<clears throat> so, we're back in Acts again this morning, um, and we're going to be diving in today kind of at the middle of Acts chapter 20. Um, what I want to do, though, to start with is just fill in some of the blanks between the last message that we had in Acts, where we wrapped up just at the beginning of chapter 19. Um, so if you open up your Bibles at chapter 19, we're just going to scamper through some of this material um, in overview. It's going to take us probably 10 minutes to do, um, and then we'll get to our passage. We'll stand and read as we usually do. Okay, so everyone cool with that? So let's pray. Um, do raise a paw um, if you need a Bible. Um, okay, let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you so much for your words. Thank you that you are a God who speaks. Thank you that you are a God who's concerned for our needs, uh, that you are not some remote deity who just spat stuff out into existence and now is just sitting back watching it play out, but you are interested in every breath that we take, that you have all our hairs numbered, that you know where we are, that you love us. And God, we pray so much that you would meet us and that you would feed us and that you would encourage us, equip us, to serve you and represent you in your world. And we pray that you would work in us through your word of grace uh, so that we might be able to do those things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So you'll remember last time out, um, we were with Paul um, beginning in Corinth. So on our map that we've been working with here, we were over here. Paul spent 18 months in that city. And you'll remember that he was teaching, uh, but he also had this new emphasis on training, and he trained up this couple called Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, and after 18 months in the city, then he decided that it was time to wrap up the second missionary journey, and he returned to Jerusalem, and he took a slightly interesting route, you might remember. Um, he traveled by sea, but he decided to drop in here at Ephesus, so he just sailed across this way and then went back down to Jerusalem. Now, he dropped in at Ephesus because that's what he had planned to do with Priscilla and Aquila. He had trained them up to be missionaries, topical this morning, um, and he dropped them off there to begin a pioneer mission work, mission work, starting in the synagogues there in the city of Ephesus. Now, you might remember what happened there in the city. They met this guy called Apollos, uh, and Apollos was uh, full of fervor, uh, but teaching an incomplete gospel in the city of Ephesus. And Priscilla and Aquila, this just still encourages me so much, just after maybe only 18 months of knowing the Lord. Uh, they were in a situation where they were ready to just dive in there and coach and equip this guy, Apollos, uh, help him uh, see uh, the missing pieces um, and equip him to then go on and have an amazingly fruitful ministry back in Corinth. And so Apollos went back over the ocean uh, to Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila stayed there in Ephesus. And right about that point in the story, Paul came back. He'd been back in Jerusalem, signing in with his uh, home church, uh, and then he started a third missionary journey. And um, you'll remember that that's the point where we had our little incident at the beginning of chapter 19, where he meets these 12 guys who were baptized by Apollos. Um, and Jesus just sent him this incredible, powerful message. He warned Paul, and through Paul, he's still warning us that if we don't pay careful attention to training and passing on the whole gospel, uh, we can end up with a watered-down version of the truth that Jesus came and lived and died to teach us. And Jesus is determined not to let that happen. So he warned Paul, and he still warns us, 
don't let the spread of the gospel turn into some kind of game of Chinese whispers where it becomes less and less like the real thing every time it's passed along. And that's where we left the story. So anyway, after the passage that we read, what we find in chapter 19 is it shows how that message that Jesus sent to Paul worked its way out in his ministry. We already saw him spending 18 months in Corinth. Now in Ephesus, he spends two years in that city. And again, it's that same emphasis, teaching, preaching, just like we've seen Paul throughout these passages that we've read in Acts. But now with this incredible new focus on training. So if you look in chapter 19, verse 9, you find that Paul is at this place called the Lecture Hall of Tyrannus uh, in the city of Ephesus, every day teaching. But he's there with a group of disciples, and they're there so they can see him doing what he's doing, and they can hear him teaching what he's teaching. And what we find in verse 10 is that through these disciples, without Paul even leaving the city of Ephesus, he was able to uh, set a movement in train which reached the entire province of Asia. Now, this province of Asia on our map uh, is everything east of there. (laughs) So he was sending out this explosive movement of missionary evangelism, just by training people up accurately. That was the fruit of this message that Jesus sent to him. We learn in the rest of chapter 19 that God did amazing miracles through Paul uh, and that they saw an amazing uh, kind of explosion of God's power in that city. And there's one incident in it that I think is particularly striking just in verses 17 to 20. uh, And this is really relevant to something that Sarah said when she was just talking about what's going on in Zambia. Um, we get this little episode where there's a group of people in the city of Ephesus who've been living with kind of a foot in both camps, one foot in the Christian world, but the other foot still living with all the books and objects and things which are part of their past life of superstition and idolatry, because that's what the city of Ephesus was all about. This was the HQ for the temple of Artemis, the fertility god, Um, and pretty much most of the people who Paul was reaching out to there were steeped in this stuff. So anyway, he meets a group of people who have been trying to be part of the church, but still not letting go of that past. But there came a point where they just decided, this has to stop. We need to wholeheartedly put all our eggs in Jesus' basket. And they came and they publicly burned all of these scrolls and objects that they had. And the text gives us a a monetary value here. That equates to about $8 million worth of objects that they burned on that day. What a testimony to the city. And that may be a challenge to some of us today. I remember when I was a young Christian, there came a moment in a very small way where I had some stuff from my past non-Christian life that I needed just to say, I've invested a ton of time in this. I am done with that. It's going in the trash. Or the rubbish, as we say in England. (laughs) And maybe that might be you. Maybe you've got some stuff in your life that needs the same treatment because the whole story of Acts says that that foot in both camps lifestyle just will not do. Jesus demands our out and out allegiance. That is faith. No safety nets, no hedging our bets. And if we hear that call, then maybe it's time for us to come out and show the world that's that we really mean business and that's what we're about. And I'm thinking particularly there's a baptism service coming up on New Year's Day great opportunity. That's kind of what baptism is about, isn't it? A chance to say to the world, Jesus is my all in all. So if that's you, think about it, because it's a great opportunity to do that. Anyway, after two years in Ephesus, 
we go on and read in verses 21 and 22 that Paul feels it's time to move on. And again, now that we've been on this journey together through Acts, it won't surprise us the reason why. Do you remember when we um, watched Paul begin his third missionary journey, that meandering route that I kind of speculatively drew him taking, uh, where he came back through this whole province of Galatia? And the reason for that is that these are the places where all the churches he had planted were on the first missionary journey. And he just had this incredible desire to go back and encourage and strengthen these people. He'd formed enduring friendships in these cities. He loved them. He was anxious for news of them. He prayed for them constantly. And as we read our New Testament letters to the Thessalonians, to the Philippians, all of these uh, letters, we find that's Paul's heart. He couldn't just let go of the places that he had been. So it won't surprise us now to learn what he's got in mind, because we know that uh, Paul, on his second missionary journey, was in this region, don't we? He was in Macedonia and Greece, and he's never had the chance to go back. So Paul's itching to get back into these cities of Philippi, where he was uh, put in jail with Silas, Thessalonica, where the riot was, Berea, Athens, Corinth. He wants to get back to these places and find out how people are getting on. So what he does is he makes a plan and he decides to go. But what we find in our passage is that just at the moment when you can imagine he's got all of his bags packed and he's made sure he has the TSA security lock on, everything's set up, um, then things get a little bit sideways in Ephesus. Um, There's a riot in the city. Um, And so we find that uh, described at the end of chapter 19. And it's kind of, I guess, a two-edged thing for us reading this now. Um, there's some encouragement and also discouragement in it. On the encouraging side, just think uh, what this riot in Ephesus really tells us about the impact of the gospel in the city. So far on the missionary journeys, we've seen quite a few of these riots, but most times they've been uh, instigated from the Jewish community, and that makes sense, doesn't it? Because Paul often begins his work in a city by going to the synagogue um, and then People are converted, and when that happens, uh, people who have been part of the synagogue for a long time see it as a threat, and they try to get Paul kicked out. But what we find is happening here in Ephesus is something quite different. Uh, Do you see that the riot in Ephesus was started by a group of silversmiths, of all people? Silversmiths have never struck me particularly as the most militant sector of our economy. You know, maybe it's the steel workers or the coal miners in England, but anyway, it's silversmiths here, so what's going on with that? Well, actually, the reason is kind of simple. You know, I said to you that uh, Ephesus was uh, Artemis HQ. And these silversmiths were there in numbers for a reason. They were idol makers. They were making little images of the goddess for people to take home and worship. And they were feeling Paul's ministry in the wallet. Idol sales were dramatically down because people were turning to the Lord. Now, that's striking, isn't it? Can you imagine the equivalent in Grand Rapids? Imagine if we had retirement risk managers and cosmetic surgeons and divorce lawyers marching through downtown with placards demanding an end to the preaching of the gospel because it was putting them out of business. That would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? And are we seeing that? You know, we've got a way to go. Like Bruce said, we need to pray for revival in our city and not just be content with the fact that we have something cool going on on a Sunday morning. That's not what this church is about. But I think also there's discouragement here for Paul too. And we need to feel this. Because these two years in Ephesus have been, it's not that they were without hardships, and we're going to go on and find that out. 
But they had been maybe a couple of the the most golden years of his ministry because he had seen the gospel going out in explosive power from this place. But now just at the point where he feels called to leave, it all just starts to just break up. From this point onwards, Ephesus uh, becomes a place where opposition is much more intense. We see that as whenever it's mentioned through the rest of the New Testament and even in Revelation. Uh, so that's the, uh, the situation that Paul finds that he has to leave the city. So anyway, what we get in the next few uh, verses, the beginning of chapter 20, is we get a record of this little journey that Paul took when he went into, back into Macedonia and Greece. Um, and Tim, if you just sling the screen back up again. Um, perfect. But what he does after going back through this region, he comes straight back and he winds up at a place here called Troas. Now, Troas is the place where he first entered Europe, the point where the decision was made, where he received that dream, Paul, go west into Europe. And he decides here that this is now the point where he needs to wrap up the third missionary journey. And this is um, a critical point for Paul because, as we see, we'll see in our passage, he feels God speaking to him, saying, this is the last time that you're going to get a chance to do this. And so he's now just about to travel back to Jerusalem, and this will be the last journey that he takes as a free man. And at Troas, what he decides to do is sail off down to Jerusalem, and you'll notice the route that that means that he has to take. He's going to come down here, um, heading out towards the open sea, and he's going to go right past Ephesus. And we know Paul's heart. He's not the kind of guy who can just leave. Uh, so he's got passion for these people. But he also realizes that if he goes back into the city, it may cause problems. It may take him a while to get out. So what he decides to do is he decides to have his boat just land at this little spot here called Miletus, which would be uh, to Ephesus a little, bit, a little bit what Saugatuck is to Grand Rapids, kind of close by on the coast. And Paul pulls in there in his boat and he sends a message into town and says, will the elders of the church please come out and meet me? I want to encourage you before I go on my way, and I'm probably never going to see you again. So that's the setup for our passage today. So now turn to uh, Acts chapter 20. We're going to pick this up at verse 17, and will you stand with me to hear what it is that Paul said to these leaders when he met them? Okay. Acts 17, Acts 20, chapter, sorry, Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to the Ephesian elders. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom 
will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed, and they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved the most was his statement that they would never see his face again, and then they accompanied him to the ship. Okay, so take a seat. And let's dive into this. Buick LeSabre, lights are on. It's not me. (laughs) Imagine that all of us here are leaders in some equivalent situation um, to that that the Ephesian elders are in. Let's say that um, we are the management team and we all work at a management level in a major international company which has its office here in Grand Rapids. And imagine that one day we get a message from our global senior vice president of sales and marketing uh, to say that he's traveling through the Midwest and he wants us to drive out and meet him at one of those big hotels on the apron of O'Hare. So you can kind of picture the scene. The message says that um, this guy wants to talk to us all. Uh, He wants to encourage us in what we're doing in our roles. He wants to equip us for the challenging task of leading our company through difficult economic times. Uh, He wants to give us confidence um, as we seek to lead and direct the people who report to us. So I wonder as we all jump in the bus, probably quite a few buses, and uh, we're driving round the lake to O'Hare, I wonder what uh, we would be expecting to hear from this guy. What exactly do we think this encouraging message might look like? Well, if the company that we're imagining that we work for here is anything like some of the companies that I've worked for, probably some of the companies that some of you work for, then maybe the first thing I guess that we would be expecting to hear um, is some encouragement about why all this work that we need to do is worth our while, right? Maybe he might say, lead well. Come on, because if you lead well, you will be respected. People are going to look up to you because of what you're doing. And I wonder whether that's maybe what some of these Ephesian elders were expecting to hear from Paul when they went out to Miletus to meet him on the beach. Probably not, if uh, they knew him really well. But maybe some of them... And we're in that boat, and if they were, they got a surprise. See, Paul sets himself up right away as an example of what it looks like to lead faithfully in the Christian life. And the words that he chooses are humility and tears. Did you see that? It doesn't seem very motivating, does it? He doesn't seem to be promising us the respect of the world around us. In verse 19, he tells us that the experience of Christian leadership is about enduring severe testing and plots. 
And then down at the end of the passage in verse 34 and 35, he tells us that far from being served, his vision of Christian leadership is about serving. It's about doing the things that he needed to have done himself and then thinking about other people who might need things doing so that he could do those things too. It was about hard work helping the weak. Now, maybe if our global vice president of sales and marketing uh, said something like this to us after we picked ourselves back off the floor, um, I guess we might say to him, well, hold on, boss. Hold on just a minute. This doesn't sound right. Doesn't that mean that we've got some kind of problem with what we're doing? Our experience in this business, if it's humiliating, if it drives us to tears and we don't get any kudos for it, maybe we should be in another business. Maybe we should change our product line. Maybe we need to think of something different to say. But the striking thing about this first part of the passage is that Paul experienced humiliation and tears precisely because he was concerned about being in the right business. So did you see in verse 24... He gives a summary of what his ministry is all about. He describes it as the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And that's the great irony of being a Christian, of seeking to lead other people to Christ, isn't it? We discover that our fellow men and women don't want good news. We didn't want it either until God worked a miracle in our lives. The thing that we most desperately need is the thing that intuitively we want to have the very least to do with. The thing that will actually answer our deepest longings is the thing that intuitively we treat with the greatest contempt. And so being an authentic Christian can never be a recipe for pleasing all the people all the time. If we want to please all the people all the time, we actually have to give them bad news. We have to give them something that's ultimately destructive. See, if we want to avoid the reaction that Paul got, well, we can try to help people feel good about themselves. We could try that maybe on our street corner or with our college ministry or um, in our house church. If we try and help people feel good about themselves, that can put a smile on their faces. Uh, That can make people respect us. And that can completely blind them to their need until they're too far gone to do anything about it. If we want to avoid the reaction that Paul got, we can try to help people take control of their own futures. And that can put a smile on people's faces. That can make people respect us. And that can completely blind them to their need until they're too far gone to do anything about it. If we want to avoid the reaction that Paul got, we can try to help people believe in their own potential. That's a great message, isn't it? That can make people respect us. That can put a smile on people's faces. And that can completely blind them to their need until they're too far gone to do anything about it. You see, none of these things are good news. None of them ultimately deal with the fundamental lostness that every single one of us faces. Only the gospel can do that. But it's just not popular because it involves urging people, asking them, pleading with them to turn around. And if sharing it involves making that challenging call, living it out can be equally challenging. Paul tells us it's about serving, not being served. You don't hear that kind of message in many modern ad campaigns, do you? You know, come on, sign up. This is a chance to be less. This is a chance to give more. This is a chance to be real. This is a chance to get hurt. But that's the pattern of Christian leadership. 
that we see here. That's what our Bibles say. If we have the same good news to share, we will experience this same mixture of joy and sorrow. And it isn't just for leaders in some kind of professional sense, because all of us are called to lead, aren't we? You notice when we were praying earlier, someone just reminded us that we're a kingdom of priests. That's right. We're all involved. Whether it's in our family, just trying to point our kids towards the gospel, whether it's in our workplace, just trying to leave Jesus' hand and footprints all over what we do, whether it's just in our friendships, longing uh, just to see people encouraged and going on and going deeper in their walk with God. All of that is Christian leadership. And these are the expectations that Paul gives us, humility and tears. But maybe we might say, well, okay, all of that could still be worth it if we'll see immediate results. Maybe we can imagine our global vice president of sales and marketing trying something like that on us. You know, come on now, team. I know that you're experiencing some pushback right now, but I'm telling you that if we can just keep going, the impact on our first quarter, the impact on your share options is going to be astronomical. Stick at it. You will be rewarded. And maybe that's what some of the Ephesian elders were expecting from Paul. Although you've got to think that that's unlikely, given what they've just been through, you know, with this riot Maybe before that, maybe if the story stopped at chapter 19, verse 10, when the gospel's exploding out into the whole of Asia, they might have said, oh, I can live with some unpopularity because look at the results we're having. But not after the riot, because that just blew away this whole delicate balance that was allowing the gospel to just spread so freely. And they were left in a situation where life had become incredibly stressed and difficult. So it's not... Uh, about whether we're going to get some immediate reward. And it's striking that uh, Paul goes actually uh, as far as he possibly could the other direction in terms of telling uh, this group about his motivation when he talks about what's driving him in his own ministry, if you look at verses 22 and 24, where we find that his expectation for the immediate future is things will actually get worse. He expects to be put in prison. And the thing that's driving him forward is not the hope of joy in the present, but it's the hope of finishing the race in the future. And this should really mess with us if we've got our eyes set on short-term rewards at all. And I know it really messes with me because I've often got my eyes set on short-term rewards. You know, is this thing that I'm doing having some impact on someone? Is someone being helped or changed? Well, that's not where Paul's heart was. Do you notice what he says in verse 24? He says he's more concerned with completing the task that Jesus has put in front of him than he is with survival. He says he would prefer to die if that's what testifying to the gospel means rather than live and give up. And the reason for this is that he's got future accounting in mind. He knows, like all of us should, that one day he will die. And he knows that on that day, But when he stands before Jesus and he's asked to give an account for the life that he's lived, this thing that's just kind of burning on his mind as he looks forward to that uh, is what he says uh, where he goes, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of your blood, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Do you notice that's the theme that we had in our Apollos message? Again, the whole will of God. It's so important for us to share the whole thing. And that's the basis for his confidence Uh, as he stands in front of these Ephesians, he knows that he hasn't just given them some watered-down 
Chinese whispers version of the gospel. He's given them the whole thing. And in the Greek, there's a really interesting connection in these verses um, between the statement that Paul makes where he says he's innocent of their blood and then just a couple of lines down where he says, be shepherds of the church of God that he bought with his own blood. So Paul's using that kind of repetition of the word blood there to tell us just how serious this task of Christian leadership really is. He says, far be it from us to imagine that our personal sense of satisfaction in seeing immediate results from our efforts has any importance whatsoever, given that the stakes are so high. The soul of every single Christian in this room has been bought at an unimaginable cost. Jesus died to make it happen. And so if as parents or as friends or as house church leaders or as pastors, we fail to do our part of encouraging and warning and proclaiming the whole will of God in any way that we can, when we meet him, Jesus will be able to just say, why? Did we think his blood of so little value that we decided just to sit on what we knew? Did we think it wasn't worth it because we weren't likely to get that much out of it? The idea of being held to account for this stuff is really scary, isn't it? I'm sure Paul intended that to be the case. I think he wants to send these Ephesian elders back to their homes to think and pray about this stuff. And I'm sure that God wants to send us back to our homes to think and pray about this too. Is there any situation that any of us is aware of where someone that we have the opportunity to influence is heading towards eternity without Jesus or without the whole gospel uh, that he lived and died to share? If there is, that's a situation that we just need to be prepared to step into. And we can see in our passage how that line of, affected, uh, li- that line of thinking affected Paul practically. We know from chapter 19, don't we, that uh, he was out there in the lecture hall of Tyrannus every day doing the public thing, teaching, explaining, dividing God's word accurately, letting people know what it contained. But then look with me at chapter 20, verse 20. After he was done with his public teaching every day, Then he went house to house, and he went in among this Ephesian church, just signing in with particular individuals, just saying, look, is there anything that you don't grasp? Is there any part of it that you're not feeling? Is there any part of this that I can help you with? Is there any way that I can use my time or my gifts to help you just appropriate the blood of Jesus for yourself? And that's our heart as a church too, isn't it, as well, and also a challenge to us. I know that I really want to do that too. I feel that each of us as individuals, we want to lift each other up this way as well. So let's just work on that assumption. Feel free to work on that assumption with us. Come and ask if there's any way that we can help you grasp and get your head around what's going on with the blood of Jesus. Just come and ask, because ultimately all of us will stand accountable before him. Okay. Maybe even after all of this, even after seeing that Christian leadership is not about being respected and it's still not about immediate results either, we might still maybe hope to comfort ourselves at least with the idea that within our own community, within the church, that Christian leadership might give us something uh, to kind of latch onto as a motivation, that it might give us a following maybe. Perhaps we can imagine our global vice president of sales and marketing saying something like this too. Now, team, I know that we're struggling, and I can't promise you an immediate turnaround. 
But if we do the right thing here, we're going to be an example for our industry. People are going to come knocking on our door, asking what we did. People are going to want to follow us. And I can imagine that might be pretty motivating. Perhaps we can see how that might spur us on as Christians. The idea that if our culture rejects the good news, uh, and if there's no instant impact, at least within our own Christian world, that people will appreciate what we're doing and they'll want to follow us. But once again, do you see in our passage, Paul doesn't go that way. In fact, he goes quite the opposite way. Paul doesn't just have pastoral concern to offer these Ephesian elders. He has a specific warning. Did you see it in verse 29 to 31? He says this, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Paul tells the Ephesian elders that he foresees a time when their church will be divided by false teaching. And did you notice what's driving this division that he anticipates? It's kind of striking. Because I suppose in my own mind, when I think about churches being divided by false teaching, I imagine that it always begins and is driven by some kind of deeply intellectual um, uh, debate or discussion about abstruse matters of theology. But actually, look what happened in Ephesus. Look at verse 30. Paul says, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth simply in order to draw away disciples after them. So when it comes right down to it, the false teachers in Ephesus just wanted their own group of disciples. They wanted followers. They weren't content to follow. They wanted to be followed. And in order to draw away a group of followers, they needed some kind of distinctive teaching. And so, lo and behold, they found one. And I'm sure it seemed all terribly rational to them without saying that that was what was ultimately driving it. So this feature of Christian leadership that we think might be the thing to rescue it for us when everything else seems so unattractive may ultimately be the thing that does more damage than anything else. The desire to be followed is not a good reason to keep going in the Christian life. And Paul illustrates that in a really remarkable way in verse 28. You know, in these verses, he's developing this whole Old Testament theme of the Christian leader as a shepherd. Jesus does the same thing, doesn't he? And he talks about the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, who leads them, they know his voice. But here in Acts, when Paul uses this shepherd imagery, what's the very first thing that he tells shepherds to do? He says, keep watch over, you're thinking, keep watch over the flock, blah, blah, blah. No, keep watch over yourselves. You see, unlike Jesus, when each of us looks in the mirror as a shepherd of God's flock, the very first thing that we should see is a sheep. Each of us is called to leadership in some capacity, but whatever that capacity is, the first lesson we need to learn is that we are no better than the people that we have been called to lead. We're no different. We need shepherding just like they do. We're just as much in danger of going astray as they are. And the latest story of the Ephesian church just absolutely spells that out. Ten years after this story that we're reading, Paul wrote his letters to Timothy and by that stage, Timothy had been appointed as the senior pastor of the church in Ephesus. And Paul's writing, giving him detailed advice about how to deal with these splits and controversies that are just bubbling out of the Ephesian church, just as he feared. 
And in both these letters, uh, Paul warns Timothy about one particular guy, this bloke called Hymenaeus, uh, who had started teaching this modified version of the gospel that said that there'd be no resurrection. Okay, tame, actually completely undermining pretty much the entire work that Jesus uh, taught, uh, the work that he came to share with us, uh, the salvation that he came to work for us. Now, it seems likely to me, given what Paul says in our story about heresy coming from within this group of Ephesian elders, that this guy, Hymenaeus, is actually standing on the beach right in front of him. He's in this group that he's got his eyes on. So this is a telling moment. This has got echoes of the Last Supper to it, hasn't it? With Jesus, with his group of disciples, and Judas right there in among them. It's a graphic picture of the fact that the most dangerous threats to the life of the church come from within the church. I've seen it in my own experience. I remember very vividly, uh, God raised up a a leader in the church in Britain um, who everyone just placed tremendous hope on. And people said, he'd be the next Martin Lloyd-Jones, the next John Stott. And shame on us for, for loading up that weight of expectation on someone's shoulders. And he was amazingly gifted uh, and a persuasive speaker. Uh, and in the end, he ended up teaching that the Bible condones homosexuality and going off living that lifestyle, leaving his wife and children behind. Just incredibly heartbreaking to watch that happen and see the devastation left behind in his church and in the guys that he discipled. I'm sure many of you too have similar sad stories that you could tell. But the warning of this passage is that that could be us. That could be crossroads. That isn't something that only happens to other people. It happens to people. And that's all we are. It could happen to us. So if you sense that God is working in our church, and I think, bless God, don't we all sense that? We sense that he's really uh, on the move. Then one of the most important things that we can do is commit ourselves to pray that God would protect that work. And that each of us would do everything in our power, as far as it depends on us, to make sure that we are not the cause of this kind of division. Verse 28, it says, shepherds, watch over yourselves. We have to guard against the desire to be followed. We have to find ways to talk to each other that offer encouragement, but don't encourage this kind of sin. So where does that leave us? Well, I must say, if we really had traveled over to Chicago to meet our global vice president of sales and marketing, uh, and he really had given us this kind of message... I think the meeting would be falling kind of flat right now, don't you think? If we can't expect to be respected, we can't expect immediate results, we dare not hope to be followed, then how on earth are we going to be motivated to keep doing a good job here? Like our marching orders for going back around the lake basically just seem like struggle on, ill-equipped, discouraged, do the best you can, you're not going to get anything out of it. But this is where we can be grateful that our master is no mere global vice president of sales and marketing, but he's the God of the universe. Because God only ever brings us down like this so that he can lift us up in all his power. Without God, the way up is always down. But with God, the way down is always up. So look with me just at a couple of details in the text that show now how Christian leadership for us even after everything we've heard about the humiliations and tears that are part of it, can still be one of the greatest joys and blessings of life. First look with me at verse 32. Paul's message about his own weaknesses and the weaknesses of every shepherd who seeks to serve in the church rightly make us wonder, well, how can we be of any use? Why should we even try? 
if we're likely to fail and if we're conscious that we have failed many, many times. But look at Paul's response. He says to the Ephesian elders, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. We might be coming out of this passage feeling weighed down by responsibility. We've been told that there'll be an accounting in the future and that if we neglect to pass on what we know, the blood of other people may be on our hands. But here's the wonderful good news. We may well lack the power to do anything to change that situation ourselves. Of course we lack that power. Only God's word, only God has that power. But you see that his word is the, is the medium through which that power that he has is put into our hands to use. God's words are life-giving. Do you remember back at the beginning of Genesis, what God can do with mere words? That he can just speak a universe into existence. He can call order out of chaos. He can speak life, and it just happens. So this is not on us. How could it be? All we have to do is point ourselves and point others to the word of God's grace. And if we lack the confidence or the opportunities to lead people towards Jesus, the word of his grace can make them. Paul tells us it can build us up and give us a place among the sanctified. There's nothing that a sanctified person can do or should do that God's word can't create in us. So you see, God may not be sending us back around the lake with confidence in ourselves, but he is sending us back around the lake with confidence. He's sending us back with confidence in his words. There's nothing that they cannot do. What does that look like in practice? Well, the simple answer is it looks like spending time with God, reading and praying over the Bible. Paul committed the Ephesian elders to the word of God's grace because he knew that the Bible was the place where they would find strength and direction to lead well. And if we want to lead well, we need the same prescription. We need God to speak his words into our lives if we want to be effective in his service. Just like he said, let there be light and there was light. We need to come to his word each day, thirsty to hear him say, let there be evangelism. Let there be proclamation of the whole will of God in our Sunday gatherings. Let there be effective testimony to the gospel in our house churches and our college ministry. Let there be life-changing encounters with God in our worship. Let there be inviting people to church. Let there be doors of opportunity open for us at work. Let there be openness to the gospel among our classmates. Let there be words of love and encouragement for me to share with my wife or my husband. Let there be spiritual awakening in our children. That's what we want to hear him say, isn't it? We need to open our Bibles if we want to be empowered to lead like this. The Bible is shepherd fuel. We're not going to get very far as shepherds with an empty tank. So that's the first thing. But now look with me again at verse 28. We've been in and out of this verse repeatedly this morning, but now let me read it with a bit of a different spin. See if you see something that Paul is just intentionally leaving for us here. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. That's striking, isn't it? All three members of the Trinity right there in that verse, which sits right at the center of the call of this passage. 
We're called to be shepherds of God's flock, and here they are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, what does that tell us? Well, on the few occasions in the Bible where uh, the writers do this and where they bring all three members of the Trinity into focus at once, they're reminding us not just that God is unimaginably more complicated than we could possibly imagine or explain. They're reminding us that there's something about him that we can relate to ever so simply. Simply that at the most essential level, our God is a God of relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit have enjoyed that relationship from the depths of eternity. One of the major reasons why they made us was to welcome us into that relationship, to give us a taste of the joy that they experience of mutual love and encouragement and submission. God made us to be capable of this kind of interaction. So we're, we're made in his image. We have marriage, we have family, we have friendship, we have citizenship. And though these things are very weak and flimsy pictures of what's really going uh, on in the Trinity, they give us enough to tell us what's happening in this passage in Acts. Take marriage as, a, as an example of it. If you got a glimpse into Ruth's and my marriage, and if you saw what we talk about, not just when we're kind of out at the shops or when I give Ruth a hurried call from the office, but when we're sitting down together on the sofa in an evening having a proper heart-to-heart, what you would see then would be a glimpse, and what you would hear would be a glimpse of what really makes us tick. Because talk about kind of superficial things just fades away, and you'd find us talking about what the future holds for our children and how much we long for them to come to know God and to go on and serve him faithfully. We talk about where our failings are and how we're struggling with them and how we long for God to work in us to change us and make us more like him. You'd see right into the core of what it is that really moves us as individuals. Now that's what's going on in our passage. It's no accident that this summons to serve as shepherds is right here, kind of expressed as the... the, uh, almost the the sofa conversation of the Trinity. Because we're getting a glimpse with this into God's inmost thoughts. We're sharing his inmost concerns. And that tells us that when we step out in faith to do this stuff, to put that stuff that we're hearing from his word into practice on our street corner, with much weakness, with much consciousness of past failure, with humility, with tears, with no expectation that we will be rewarded or followed, In that moment, he is with us, and we could not be closer to his inmost heart. His eye is on us. His power is working through us as we step out once again to try and find a way to have a meaningful conversation with that neighbor that we've always failed to make it happen with, or as we try to summon up courage once again to show our non-Christian family that Jesus is the love of our lives. The Father speaks strength and life into us where we don't have any strength or life. The Holy Spirit moves us to action, even when it doesn't feel like it's coming out of much bravery or holiness. And Jesus himself wades into the situations that we wade into, where we have nothing to give. He gives through us, enabling and sustaining us by the power of his blood. Let's pray. God, it's our heart as a church just to answer this call. All of us in any form of leadership, and I think that's all of us, whether it's more public or whether it's just uh, with friends or in our family or just seeking to point people to you, we long to be shepherds of your flock who don't need to be ashamed 
who correctly handle your words, who proclaim the whole will of God. Jesus, we want to be people who have our eyes on eternity, who know that one day we will stand before you, and who fear that rightly. And God, we, when we see that that's what's ahead, we just realize we don't have any power to deliver it ourselves. And that's exactly the place that you would have us be. And so, God, we come to your words. God, would you help us just to dive back into your word of truth, just to commit ourselves to be in it every day, to drink it in. Lord God, that we might then be sent out in the power of the Spirit to really change our neighborhoods, our city, and wherever it is that you choose to send us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're just going to keep our eyes right on Jesus right now. We're going to respond to him. Ushers, come down. We're going